turn in your Bibles, our scripture reading will come from the book of Mark, the book of Mark, Mark chapter 2, verses 18 all the way to chapter 3, verse 6. Mark chapter 2, verse 18 through chapter 3, verse 6. We've come to a section in which Mark has presented to his Gentile readers a series of conflicts that Jesus has with the religious leaders. There are five conflicts that are recorded for us here. Certainly, I'm sure there were more, but there are five that are here, and this morning we will be considering and covering the last three of those conflicts. Mark chapter 2, verse 18. The scriptures read, John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, and they came and said to him, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, while the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the patch pulls away from it the new from the old, and a worse tear results. No one puts a new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is lost and the skins as well, but one puts new wine into fresh wineskins. And it happened that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. The Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need? And he and his companions became hungry, how he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest, and he also gave it to those who were with him. Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. He entered again into a synagogue, and a man was there whose hand was withered. And they were watching him to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath, so that they might accuse him. He said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he said to him, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath to save a life or to kill? But they kept silent. And looking around at them with anger, Grieved at their hardness of heart, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. The Pharisees went out and immediately began conspiring with the Herodians against him as to how they might destroy him. Let's bow together in a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we pray that your spirit would fill us, that we might understand and know, see what your word would say, that we might obey 
and follow. For your name's sake, we pray. Amen. Many of you already know the name of Elizabeth Elliot. She is a well-known missionary. She is a well-known author. She is the wife of Jim Elliot, who was a missionary to Ecuador, who was killed as a martyr when he was trying to reach the Aka Indians. She writes in her book, The Liberty of Obedience, and she records a dialogue in that book related to a young man. The young man asks this. He says, quote, I am in earnest about forsaking the world and following Christ, but I'm puzzled about worldly things. What is it I must forsake? The young man asks. And this is the reply that he gets from someone. Quote, colored clothes, for one thing. Get rid of everything in your wardrobe that is not white. Stop sleeping on a soft pillow. Sell your musical instruments and don't eat any more white bread. You cannot, if you are sincere about obeying Christ, take warm baths or shave your beard. To shave is to lie against him who created us to attempt to improve on his work." Unquote. She writes, does this sound absurd? It is the answer that is given in the most celebrated Christian schools of the second century. Is it possible that the rules that have been adopted by many 20th century Christians will sound just as absurd to earnest followers of Christ a few years hence, unquote. The point is, it's easy. It's so very easy to add to the Word of God in such a way that it sets a standard of righteousness for people to follow. And that is what the Pharisees did in the days of Jesus. That is why there is this conflict, because the Pharisees added to the Word of God in order that they might somehow achieve righteousness, in order that somehow they might be able to achieve the righteousness of God on their own by delineating applications by which they might obey the Word of God. And in so doing, they twisted the Word of God and lowered its standard in order that they might be able to somehow, in their own self-righteousness, be obedient. The Word of God and the law was good, and Paul argues the goodness of the law, and Jesus fulfilled perfectly the law of God. He never broke the law of God. Jesus was perfectly obedient, but in these cases here, in these conflicts that we will see this morning, Jesus breaks the law, not of God but of the Pharisees, for they had compiled laws upon laws, and they judged the disciples of Jesus and even Jesus himself by what they say and do. So let's take a look at these last three conflicts this morning over the man-made laws of the Pharisees. In verse 18, John's disciples and the Pharisees, they were fasting and they came to him and said, why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, yet your disciples do not fast? Now, technically, the law only required that the Jews fast one time a year, and that was on the Day of Atonement. The Day of Atonement was a time of mourning, a time of reflection over their own sin, and this, it also culminated with this day of fasting. 
Now, after the exile, the Jews would add four other annual fasts that were observed by the Jews. So there were five fasts. People would fast when, oftentimes when they're grieving, when there was sorrow over sin or when they were pursuing God or some reason such as that. But when the time of the Pharisees came, which is in the intertestamental period, they had developed this type of thing where fasting for the Pharisees was done twice a week. You would fast on Monday, you would fast on Thursday. And when it came to these religious practices, there were three that stood out for the Pharisees especially. They were praying, they were fasting, and they were the giving of alms or the giving of money. And the Pharisees would take these practices and they would practice them rather ostentatiously for other people to see. They would pray out in the street corners long and long prayers and they would fast and they would look as if they hadn't been without food for a long time and they would give alms for others to see all so that people would see their own piety so people would see how religious they were so they'd see how devoted they were it was for show and Jesus condemns them for that in the gospels here in this particular passage we see too that there are some disciples of John the Baptist and the curious note is why is it John the Baptist's disciples that are also here after all, many of the conflicts that we see are with the scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the Herodians, whoever we were. But here there is accompaniment of John the Baptist's disciples. Well, very well could have been. We know that John the Baptist had many disciples. He was very popular. People would throng to see John the Baptist, to be baptized. But the baptism that John the Baptist gave was a baptism of repentance. It was a baptism in which people said, you know what? I am a sinner. I want to turn from my sin. I want to follow God. And perhaps these people, of course, John had many disciples, many people who were following him, came back zealous to follow God, fastidious not to sin, and they would latch on to these pharisaical laws as well to say, you know what, we fast. We fast Monday and Thursday just like everyone else. Whatever the reason was, the context is not exactly given as to which fast it was, but we do know that John's disciples here brought about this question, and Jesus, what Jesus does is he gives two parables and analogies later on in this passage that explain to them the reason why his disciples do not fast. Jesus said to them, while the bridegroom is with them, the attendants of the bridegroom cannot fast, can they? So long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. But the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast in that day. Now, if there was a wedding during Jewish times, you would get an invitation. It was a save-the-date invitation without a date. That's what it was. You would get an invitation saying a wedding is coming, and you'd better be ready whenever it's called, and, 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 and you'd got to, you better be ready because you're going to be invited to this wedding, all right? And that's why the parables about the wedding and being ready at any time, that's why they would understand there's a no date there. Why? Because there'd be a, a time, a period of time when the wedding would be prepared for all of the guests that would come. And like some of the weddings you'd be in, the major part of the wedding was the food, the time it would take to go and harvest some of the crops, to gather the fruits, to make sure there's enough tables and seating and, and all of that, because part of the celebration was not just showing up and being there, not just the ceremony itself, but also the wonderful food that would be served. 
Now, fasting was done for many reasons. Sometimes it was done because of sorrow over sin. Sometimes it was done because of a spiritual concern. One desires to pray to God. And if you were at a wedding feast and hear the host places before you all of this wonderful food that it's taken days and days, maybe weeks to prepare, and has all of the food there, and you say, I'm I'm on a fast. I can't have anything for today. Whatever it might, it would be offensive. It's completely inappropriate for you to be fasting during a wedding. And the point of this was, had the Pharisees and others known who Jesus was, that the celebration of the Messiah with them would mean this is not a time of sadness, would mean that this is not a time of sorrow, this is not a time of abstaining somehow from food, This was a time of celebration because the groom was here, the Messiah was here, but they didn't recognize him. For his disciples, they didn't fast. Jesus said, it is right for them not to because I am there with them. But there will be a time, it says, when he will be taken away. And that particular word refers to some violent, sudden removal. Many think that it's referring referring to his crucifixion when he will be taken away and there will be sadness and sorrow during that time. But the point is that his disciples were not fasting because it was a time of joy, a time of celebration, that Jesus was there. And he gives a parable. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment and then no one puts new wine into old wineskins. And the analogy is very straightforward. You, you don't put an unshrunk piece of cloth, a patch of cloth on some washed and shrunk clothing because when that piece of cloth shrinks after you wash it, then it'll tear at the other portions and you'll have another hole or you'll have some sort of blemish on your garment. And the same with the wineskins. Wineskins were made from animals. What they would take is they'd take an animal and they perhaps the leg or whatnot, there'd be two ends, they would sew up one end, and then they would put wine, new wine, into that wineskin. And that new wine would ferment, and in the fermentation process, it would produce gases. And then the gases that would fill up this wineskin, you'd seal the top, You'd seal the top, it would, it would cause that wineskin to expand because the wineskin would still retain its elasticity. And afterwards, of course, you could enjoy the wine. Here, here this little wineskin has now become big, it's full of fermented wine, it tastes good. But you don't empty it out after you're all done and put more wine, more new wine into that wineskin. Why? Because over time, that wineskin would have lost its elasticity when that new wine would ferment and the gases would once again expand. It would cause that wineskin to explode. It would be completely inappropriate to. The illustrations of these two illustrations of the, of the patch of the unshrunk cloth or the wineskin were the same. They're one and the same. Because the Pharisees had their own religious system, their own religious system of legalistic righteousness that was incompatible with Jesus' gospel of grace. They had their own beliefs about fasting, about the Sabbath, which we will see, etc., that were completely different than what Jesus brought, and their practices of the law were such that they thought they could achieve the law, and yet Jesus was preaching another gospel, the gospel of grace. And that is the difference between Christianity, which is a, a gospel of grace compared to all of the other religions in the world today, which has some 
form of works, righteousness, some form of human achievement. The point is you cannot add the gospel of Jesus. You cannot add Christianity to what you already believe and somehow have a syncretistic religion where you take the best of both worlds or you add Jesus to your old customs of worship or your old patterns of worship. Some of you have come out of a culture in which you have some sort of history with some other religion, some practices that are practiced there. You need to stop practicing those because what Jesus brings as the worship of the only true God is incompatible with the worship of idolatry. It's not that the laws of God are somehow bad. The laws of God are good. Jesus perfectly fulfilled the law. But the point of the law was given so that we might pursue the grace of God to say we can't possibly fulfill all of the things in the law and to drive us to God. And that is to drive us to Christ and the gospel of grace. We cannot take the law in his case, as the Pharisees said, that they took the law and added to them their own beliefs. You cannot have both. And the point of the parable is the same. You cannot add the gospel of grace to their system of legalism. I remember a number of years ago, there was a young man who walked through the doors of his church. He had heard from a friend, had been talking with a friend about Christ, and it was almost an ideal scenario. He came, he wanted to know more about Jesus and how to become a Christian. So we walked, we sat down in the library and we talked, we shared with him the gospel what it was, what a Christian, what, what a Christian meant, being a Christian was, shared with him, and he seemed to understand everything. We prayed together, received Christ, turned from his sins, and with great tears in his eyes, received Christ. So then we began follow-up. I began meeting him one-on-one for the next 10 to 12 weeks for follow-up. We would go over the doctrine of God and what the Bible was and how to do your devotions and how to spend time with the Lord, what fellowship was. Then we came to the lesson on Jesus. The lesson on Jesus and when, you know, there was homework to be done, there were Bible memory verses and one of the verses that we went over was John 14.6. John 14.6 which tells us that Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. We talked about that verse, and I remember he had a lot of trouble with that because he didn't believe Jesus was the only way to heaven. He believed in a number of things. He had come from a background of a cult, and he believed many things, that there were other ways that not just Jesus, that Christianity wasn't exclusive, or the way to heaven wasn't exclusive, and he didn't like how Christianity was exclusive, and he wanted to add Jesus to the things that he believed, and so he dutifully, we finished the entire 10, 12 weeks, we did all the homework, memorized the verses, etc., but we continued to talk about this one point, that Jesus is the only way to heaven. The only way to eternal life. The only person who can grant forgiveness of sin. The only one who can save you from your sins. And he didn't believe that. So he tried to go to church around where he lived. He lived quite far away, but he commuted 
And then, over time, the evidence of his faith showed forth the fruit of his life. He no longer went, no longer does he think, I think he's Christian. No matter what he prayed, no matter how tearful that, that reception of his salvation, potential salvation was, his profession of faith, the evidence of his faith showed the real life that was in him, which was a life that wasn't saved, a life that didn't know him, because he was believing in a Jesus, not the Jesus of the Scriptures. His idea of Jesus was his own creation. You cannot just take Jesus and say, I believe these things about Jesus and I want to add it to my previous beliefs of whatever worship or practices I have. Jesus is the only way. Jesus is the Savior of the world, the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father but by Jesus. Jesus says, while the disciples, my disciples aren't fasting, why? Because I am here, and I am the way. You cannot add my way to your way of legalism in his response to the Pharisees. And that comes into play here in the next two conflicts in verse 23. It says, and it happened, he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along while picking the heads of grain. Now, typically in that agrarian culture, they would have these fields, large fields, and they weren't like all these, these major roads that you might see in farmlands today. People would just go through these fields, and there would be a paved pathway. So people, I mean, not a paved pathway, but a pathway that people would kind of trample on. So you'd kind of have this pathway through these fields. And so you'd have whatever crop it was on either side. And in this case, it was grain. These beaten down paths, and the disciples would take some of the grain, and they would rub it in their hands and let the chaff fly off, and they would nibble on the grains. And the Pharisees, well, it upset them. But you know what God's law says in Deuteronomy 23, 25? When you enter your neighbor's standing grain, then you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not wield a sickle in your neighbor's standing grain. In other words, when you walk by the way, it's fine. You take a little bit of this, and you rub it in your hands, and you take a little grain for a little snack, or satisfy your hunger, whatever it might be, but you can't take out your sickle and begin harvesting your neighbor's grain. That would be too much. In fact, the law of God even allowed for the, 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 the farmer, and they included this idea that you're to leave some of the grain behind. It says in Leviticus 19.9, when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest. So you go harvest your grain, you're not supposed to go and harvest 100% of everything, so there's nothing left. You leave the corners there, and when you pick up the grain, obviously there's going to be some things that fall on the ground because you're, you have these bushels, and you're going to put all your grain there, and you're going to tie them up. There's always going to be grain that will fall on the ground. You're not to be cheap and just harvest everything. Why? Because this is a means by God, way God would provide for the poor. You probably remember the book of Ruth and how Ruth went to these fields to pick up the gleanings. Her and her mother had come back and they were very poor and they would gather up. They would gather up some of the extra food by picking up some of these gleanings. So being that that was in the law, why did the Pharisees get all worked up? Why were the Pharisees upset? They said in verse 24, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? The conflict is about what the Pharisees considered lawful on the Sabbath. Now, the Sabbath 
rightly understood. The Sabbath, that word means rest. It means inactivity. It had the idea of ceasing. And many of you know it's one of the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, verse 8 through 11. God said, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, your son, your daughter, etc., etc. The intent of the commandment was for that of rest and that of remembrance. The people were to rest from their labors. They were to take time to remember the Lord. It was intended for the good of the people. It was intended that people might have joy. It was intended as a day that people would look forward to. This is a day, the Sabbath day. I look forward to that type of a thing. That's what God wanted the Israelites to say. And it was, as it says in Exodus chapter 31, verses 12 to 17, it tells us that the Sabbath was specifically given to the children of Israel to practice. In Exodus 31, verse 15, it says, For six days work may be done, but on the seventh day there is a Sabbath of complete rest to the Lord, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day shall surely be put to death. So any Israelite in the Old Testament who refused to practice the Sabbath, who decided that they were going to make a little extra money or whatever it might have been, who did work, well, that was a serious offense, and that incurred the death penalty. So as a sidebar, it's to note that Sabbath was given to the nation of Israel, to the people of Israel in Exodus chapter 31. It is the only commandment out of the Ten Commandments that's not repeated in the New Testament. So the practice of the Old Testament Sabbath is not for us, although the principle and the pattern of getting together weekly for worship would be a pattern we find in the New Testament, a pattern not to be neglected, even as our scripture called to worship this morning in Hebrews 10, 24, and 25, do not neglect the gathering of yourselves together as is the habit of some but encourage one another, and all the more as you see the day draw near. That is the command of God. But no, we don't practice the Sabbath as it was given to Israel. That was given to Israel. But much like many of the laws of the Old Testament, what the Pharisees and other rabbis did was they defined the law such that it was no longer joyful. They defined the law such that they could possibly keep it and somehow attain their own righteousness through the keeping of the law. It was no longer something that people would look forward to. In fact, it was downright a burden for people. The way they kept the Sabbath, which was the pinnacle of all of the commands, you've got to keep the Sabbath. That would infuriate him, the Pharisees, if, if they didn't, somebody didn't keep the Sabbath. But the Sabbath law became like an anchor tied around a person's neck, became a burden. In fact, when you read the Talmud. The Talmud is a compilation of Jewish traditions. The Talmud had an entire 24 chapters on listing and clarifying Sabbath laws. The rabbis taught, for example, that on the Sabbath, you could not travel more than 3,000 feet from your home. Now, if you put some food at the 2,999th foot, from your home, you could go and get it, and that would be considered an extension of your home, so you actually get another 3,000 feet. I remember when I was in Israel, I was walking along the road and it looked like there were some uh, you know, telephone wires or some power poles or something, and I asked our guide, what, what are those? 
And he explained, oh, those are not telephone wires. Those are not telephone poles. Those poles and those wires indicate the distance that you have traveled. So you better be sure, if you're a Jew, you don't travel more than 3,000 feet. The rabbis taught, you could not throw an object into the air with one hand and catch it with the other. That's work. If you were reaching for some food to pick it up and the clock strikes 6 p.m., you were required to drop the food and not draw your arm back, lest you be accused of carrying something on the Sabbath. In fact, a Jew was not allowed to carry a load that was heavier than a dried fig. If something weighed half that amount, you would carry it twice. You were not allowed to eat anything larger than an olive. If you tasted an olive, and again, this is all in the Talmud, if you tasted half an olive and discovered it was rotten and you spit it out, that half was considered eaten as part of your allowance. Some of you don't like olives anyways. <laughs> Nothing could be bought or sold, dyed or washed, and you couldn't send a letter or even light a fire. You know, I was reading Orthodox Jews. Many of them have automatic timers to turn on their lights or open their doors or whatever. I'm sure it's easier nowadays. You just tell Alexa to turn something on. It'll be fine. <laughs> Baths. No taking a bath on the Sabbath. Because, why? Some of the water might splash out of your bathtub, and that'd be considered washing your floor. Chairs could not be moved because dragging them might create a furrow in the ground. And if you're a woman, no looking in the mirror. Why? Because you might see a gray hair and be tempted to pull it out. That's work. You can't sow, you can't plow, you can't reap, you can't grind, you can't bake, you can't thresh, you can't bind sheaves, winnowing, sifting, shearing, spinning, kneading, separating, or weaving two threads, tying or untying a knot. None of that. No sewing, two stitches. They were all forbidden. The Sabbath was cumbersome, and it was held in such high regard the Jews would not dare violate the Sabbath. In fact, in the book of 1 Maccabees, chapter 2, verse 31 to 38, that's an extra biblical book. It records the time of Judas Maccabeus. When the Jews refused to defend themselves, the Greek army led by Antiochus Epiphanes. Antiochus Epiphanes was a Roman who desecrated the temple by putting a pig on the altar. But he came and attacked them. But there was a day when it was on the Sabbath. They refused to defend themselves. The Jews said, quote, Answer them not, neither cast they a stone at them, nor stopped the places where they lay hid, but said, Let us die in our innocency. Heaven and earth will testify for us that ye put us to death wrongfully, unquote. And the Greeks came and they slaughtered a thousand women, children, and cattle. Even Jerusalem, according to Josephus, was captured by Pompey because the Jews would not defend themselves on the Sabbath. And because all of these rules and laws and legalistic things were piled on top of the Sabbath, when the disciples were seen just gathering these, you know, grains, that infuriated the Pharisees. Because the Talmud, according to Jewish tradition, says, quote, if a person rolls wheat to remove the husk, it is sifting. If he rubs the heads of the wheat, it is threshing. If he cleans off the side adherences, it is sifting. If he bruises the ears, it is grinding. 
And if he throws it up in his hand, it is winnowing. That was work. That is work. Even though the law of God said it was perfectly fine for someone to take and eat of the grain, they said, well, no, our rules say on the Sabbath you can do no such thing. Otherwise, that is work, and that is sin against God, and it's so serious that it is that worthy of a death penalty. Jesus counters all of these legalistic rules, and he says this in verse 25. You never read what David did when he was in need? He and his companions became hungry. He entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar the priest and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priest. And he also gave it to those who were with him. And he said, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. David, he quotes, he was a hero to the Jews. David was looked upon as a hero to the Jews. In the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament, David and his friends, they were running from King Saul. They are running from King Saul. They came to a city called Nob, N-O-B. They were, there was a tabernacle located there. They asked for food. In the tabernacle, there was the bread of presence. That's what they called it. The bread of presence that was baked every single week. And every Sabbath, there were the dozen fresh loaves of this bread. The dozen fresh loaves of the bread represented the 12 tribes of Israel. And they were put out on a table of gold in two rows, two rows of six. And it symbolized the idea and reminded Israel that God was the source of their strength, that God was the source of their food. They bake these to remind them that God is the one who provides. They needed to depend upon God for everything. They were considered ceremonially holy. They were considered only to be eaten by the priests after seven days. David and his men asked for some food. The Abimelech, the priest for Abimelech, said there was none except for the consecrated bread, which is meant only for the priests. But he asked David in that passage, is he ceremonially clean? And David said, yes. And Abimelech gave him some to eat. And before God, it was not considered sinful as David and his men nor Abimelech were ever condemned in the scriptures or rebuked or punished for doing that. The point Jesus was making was that even God allowed his own ceremonial, ceremonial, not moral laws, in certain circumstances, to be superseded by what? By heart of compassion or need, as we will see later on in the next conflict that he has with the Pharisees. And if God would allow David to eat and the priest to do work, because he makes that point too in Matthew chapter 12, in the parallel passage, Matthew chapter 12, Jesus makes the point that even priests, the priests do a lot of work on the Sabbath, more than the typical work that they would do. They would have to slaughter all of the animals. They have to uh, light the sacrifices on the altar. They had to light all the altar fires, etc. They would do all of this work, Jesus says. So look at that example. Don't you realize that even the ceremonial laws, there are going to be exceptions. And here, you're talking about them eating grain and tossing them in the air or threshing. That's not an abrogation of God's law. And the point of the passage is that it's so very easy to take the Word of God and add to it, making it up where we have our own lives and our own rules and our own standards by which we then become judge and jury over others. That's what the Pharisees did. And we see where they go wrong in their heart in the next conflict. A legalism or a love for God. 
He enters again in the synagogue. There was a man there whose hand was withered, and they were watching him to see if he would heal on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Look at their motive already. They're there, set, ready to accuse him. I mean, they weren't there to worship on the Sabbath. They were looking for where he would trip up. He said to the man with the withered hand, get up and come forward. And he said to them, is it lawful to do good or do harm on the Sabbath to save a life or to kill, unquote? What Jesus does is he sets the stage for a direct confrontation with the religious leaders. He sets the stage with the religious leaders. He doesn't beat around the bush. He doesn't skirt the issue. He doesn't hide in some closet. What he does is he sets the stage in a confrontation. They believe that if you wanted to be a good Jew, you were not only to follow the laws of God, but you were to follow their man-made rules as well of right and wrong. And their attitude was that they might accuse him. They became the Gestapo of the Sabbath, those that would look for those who would do that which is right. It wasn't for them a time of honoring God. It wasn't a time for them of rest. It wasn't a time of remembrance. It wasn't a time of joy that God intended it to be. They're looking out to get Jesus. The Bible says Jesus knew what they were thinking. He decided he was going to confront them, confront them not only with their teaching, but also with their attitude, all of the regulations that they had, and all of the laws that they revered, the Sabbath was the pinnacle of all of their laws. So he calls a man forward. He calls a man forward, a man with a withered hand. Why? Because the rabbis also taught if a person was dying, you could help them. If they were in a life-threatening situation on the Sabbath, it's okay to help them. You wouldn't be doing work, but only so much as to keep that person alive. You couldn't do any more work than was necessary to keep that person alive. Imagine that. You're in a burning building. Your house is burning down. What would they do? Well, they could drag you outside in order to save your life. There you are, you have a concussion, a broken hand, smoke inhalation, all of that. Then they have to leave you on the sidewalk because your life is saved. That's all. But if you helped anyone without a life-threatening situation to the rabbis, that was considered work. So Jesus asked them the question, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath to save a life or to destroy it? And they couldn't answer. They couldn't answer. It's a logical conundrum for them. The command of Jesus, he called the man, stretch out his hand, and he healed them. And in so doing, Jesus did not break the law of God, but he broke the law of the Pharisees, their man-made laws. Because if there's any day in which you would do good of all the days, do it on the Sabbath. The Pharisees, they were utterly without what? utterly without mercy and compassion. In the book Upwards, there's a quote that says, legalism has no pity on people. Legalism makes my opinion your burden, makes my opinion your boundary, makes my opinion your obligation, unquote. Matthew 12, 7, in the parallel passage, Jesus says, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice. You know, legalism is filled with all sorts of judgments, attitudes, lacking compassion or understanding. 
Compassion can even be lost today when rules are followed. There's an account back in 1998 of a 15-year-old boy. He was a 15-year-old African-American boy in Chicago. He was playing ball. His name was Christopher Searcy, playing ball with some of his friends. Half a block from a hospital called Ravenswood Hospital. There were three teenage Latino gang members. They were looking for a target. They approached him and they shot him in the abdomen. His friends were frantic and they carried him to within 30 feet of the hospital and they ran inside the hospital to help. The emergency personnel in the hospital, they refused to go outside to assist this boy who had been shot in the stomach. Why? Because they had a policy. That policy only allowed them to help those who were inside the hospital, not outside the hospital. So the boys, they clamored and they called for the nearby police to come and help their friend. And the police arrived on the scene and they proceeded to call for an ambulance. It's just 30 feet away. They refused to carry the boy inside. Pastor Blyers pled for the officers to get, into the, get the boy into the hospital. And he began just laying there in his own pool of blood until under the pressure, after minutes, after the ambulance had not yet arrived, the police gave in and brought that boy, Cersei, into the emergency room. But that young 15-year-old died all because of a policy. Hospital administration, they... They defended the ER's lack of involvement. The policy was, we only treat those who are inside the hospital, not those who are outside. And it was only after the public outcry, the public outrage against that policy, treating only those inside of its doors, did it reverse its policy. That's when things become so rigid that, what, compassion, compassion, loses its meaning. The passage is not, this passage is not somehow addressing or saying that clear issues of sin are compromised. In other words, Jesus is not saying that the Word of God is a compilation of suggestions. He is not saying that the Word of God, we choose which Bible verses to obey and not obey. Now, what he is saying is that these things that Jesus broke the law on were not God's law. They were the Pharisaical laws, the laws that they had made. Jesus perfectly obeyed the Word of God always and in completeness because obedience to the Word of God brings true freedom. It brings true freedom. But it is those things that are man-made rules that we believe garner more righteousness that suffocate lives. The Word of God is not compatible with our old beliefs. That's what Jesus said. The old beliefs are often filled with things that we desire to do, the righteousness that we can achieve by ourselves. No, God's way is pure. And what the Pharisees had done, and they had made the Sabbath into this burdensome, joyless day, that's why Jesus in Matthew eleven twenty eight, when Jesus says to the people, come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, 
and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus is not talking to people who have had a long day at work. He's not talking to people who have studied all week long and are now tired. He's not talking to people who are burnt out because of the labor they have. He's talking to people who are burdened and weary because of the burden that the Pharisees and the religious leaders had placed upon them. The expectations of following all of these fastidious laws so that they might somehow achieve the righteousness on their own sakes or their own selves was a burden to them. And Jesus has come unto me, all who are weary and heavy laden, I will give you rest. I will give you rest for your souls. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Christ. You don't know God. You've never received the Lord Jesus as your Savior. To you, life is a burden because you're always trying to do that which is right and wrong. And in the end, you can never be perfect enough to gain your way into heaven, to be pleasing to God on your own. And Jesus comes to tell us of the gospel of grace, that he died. and He empowers us by his spirit to be able to live a righteous life to be able to look forward to coming together to worship God with great joy because it is not a burden. And God grants that to us, but it is only by the grace of God. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we come to you and we give you thanks, Father, for your word, which is a word of freedom not freedom to do what we want, not freedom to exercise our own independence apart from you, but the freedom to do what pleases you. And when we do, we find true joy, we find true peace. We pray, God, that you would grant to us the strength to come out from under, perhaps, the things that we've even told ourselves over the years in ways that we may not have ever experienced, the ways to come out from underneath the legalistic things that we may have even built for ourselves. God, to live in your grace, to understand your love, and to have a heart filled with compassion and mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.